0: Blog Talk Radio Slow down, touch your life Don't you know there's friends to be found Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show, sponsored by Sunbury Press, publisher of books under nine different imprints in a variety of categories, available worldwide wherever books are sold. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder of Sunbury Press, and today I have Scott Hendricks, the author of Gods, Philosophers, and Scientists. I'll tell you a little bit about the book before we get started. According to Pew Research Studies... Most Americans think religion always conflicts with science. The popular writings of scientists such as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Lawrence Krauss, reinforce this idea as do books by writers such as Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett. Furthermore, the two versions of the enormously popular television show Cosmos, hosted by Carl Sagan in 1980 and Neil deGrasse Tyson in 2014, present a history of science in which religion has always acted as a barrier to scientific development. God's philosophers and scientists shows that just because an idea is popular doesn't mean it's correct. By examining the historical record from the time of the ancient Greeks to today, readers are able to see that religion and science have been allies more often than enemies, and when conflict does occur, it's too simplistic to view it as coming from something inherent to either science or religion. Anyone interested in the history of science or religion, who's curious about how science works, or who wants to have a better understanding of the world, should read this book. Scott E. Hendricks earned his Ph.D. from the University of Tennessee in 2007, specializing in the history of science. Scott started teaching at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin, upon graduation, and over the years has taught classes about world, medieval, and early modern history, as well as the history and philosophy of science. Scott has maintained an active research agenda, publishing numerous books, articles, book chapters, and even an encyclopedia on the world's greatest religious leaders. I'd like to welcome Dr. Scott Hendricks to the Sunbury Press Book Show. Scott, welcome aboard. Howdy, Lawrence. Glad to be here. So I'd just have to start with this. Uh, we were talking before we came on and and we were having such a great conversation. I wish we had recorded that. So we'll try to recapture some of that. Uh, You know, the concept of God's philosophers and scientists and the whole religion versus science debate that that is rampant in our society today, it it just seems like we live in such a binary world in, in recent times and it's science or religion and it seems to be left versus right and  … … politicized. Um, how do you how do you handle that with your students in your academic setting?
1: Yeah, it's something that I have seen for a long time when I've been teaching, and it was really one of the driving forces of me researching and writing this book. Um, I have students who come in who often are people of faith, and they don't believe that their own uh, beliefs conflict with scientific teaching, but it makes them uncomfortable to be people of faith and uh, to be learning about science and to think that there must be some sort of conflict between the two. And uh, so in the classroom, I I never just come right out and say, well, this is right or this is wrong in terms of how to understand that. But instead, we've got a whole semester. And so over the course of the semester, among a whole bunch of other things, I just have them read the sources and look at how the people like uh, Kepler and Galileo, who I discuss in the book, um, saw that their own faith drove them to study the universe. And so by the end of the semester I have students who say, Well, I started off thinking that religion and science must somehow be in conflict and now I I see that it's a lot more complicated than that. And that's really what the book is trying to do as well. Yeah, I I think about uh I, I have to admit
0: that I occasionally drop in and, and watch Ancient Aliens on the History Channel, which I, <laughs> I think it's funny that it ends up on the History uh-huh. Channel, <laughs> how much real history is involved there. But, you know, they, they do touch on some very interesting concepts of uh, where, where religion and science to mm. across paths and the history of cultures um, mm. might have, where they're worshipping certain deities or certain events, and maybe there's a scientific connection there. You know, you go to the Bible and Genesis, and the, the the let there be light, and there was light, sort of aligns with what we think happened with the Big Bang. Maybe, maybe what we have going on in some religious texts is just the layman's or uh, a less scientific description of potentially, uh, you know, historic events. So, yeah, you know, I, I don't know what you what what you pull from that if you have students that come in, you know, <laughs> asking those kinds of questions. <laughs>
1: Well, that's certainly the approach that uh, many late classical and medieval um, authors took. Um, So for example, Augustine uh, wrote a book uh, called The Literal Commentary on Genesis, and today when we think of a a literal uh, interpretation of the Bible, then we wouldn't think of what uh, Augustine was thinking about it. And He wrote this in the, the early 400s. And in this, he he analyzes exactly what you're talking about, um, what the Bible has to say about the creation of the universe. And among other things, he makes the argument that life – when God created life, that he started with simpler forms leading up to more complex forms and argues that God put uh, what Augustine referred to as um, seeds of life into the world that would develop into more complex forms. And so… Later on, when Charles Darwin developed uh, the theory of uh, evolution by natural selection in the 19th century, many Catholic leaders, like uh, Cardinal Newman, um, just came right out and said, Well, this sounds a lot like what Augustine said 1400 years ago. And so it made it very easy for them to accept because it was what they had kind of halfway intuited uh, for many, many centuries. Yeah.
0: So, why do you think there is such a perception of a conflict between science and religion. What's your opinion on that?
1: Well, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned the the binary view of the world that many people have today and some of the more modern conflicts. Um, So I don't think any of the listeners will be surprised uh, for me to mention that uh, in the world today, uh, particularly in America but also in many other parts of the world, that there's a big controversy um, over immigration… And in the 19th century, there was also a controversy about immigration, and there were many people who were unhappy about large groups of immigrants who were coming into the United States um, saying these immigrants come in. Uh, they don't speak our language. They don't share our culture. They're taking our jobs, and that was exactly the kind of language they used in the 19th century. But at that point, the uh, group of immigrants that they were primarily talking about were Irish. Um, Italians as well, but Irish were a main focus of people such as this, and so uh, people like um, Charles W. Draper, um, who wrote The Warfare of Theology with Science. um, He was a big proponent of what we now call the conflict thesis, and it's interesting because modern writers such as Neil deGrasse Tyson will directly quote from Draper and uh, treat this as a a valuable source for their own writings to show…  … that there is a conflict between religion and science. But Draper, writing in the 19th century, first of all, he wasn't a historian. He was actually a chemist. But second of all, if you actually look at his book, what he is really arguing is not just about religion versus science, but really he's attacking Catholicism. And he's very angry about Catholicism. He doesn't like it for a lot of reasons, some of those personal Um, But he's very upset about the immigration um, that's coming from Ireland into the United States in the 19th century. And so in the book, he actually holds up one religious tradition that he says is very rational, and modern people would find it surprising that he points to Islam as his example of a rational religious tradition. Um, But for him… This this view of conflict is really driven by his anti-Catholic feelings, and uh, this gets kind of baked into the way that many people in America then kind of think about this this conflict, that it's a conflict between superstition and science, and many people for a long time equated superstition with… Catholicism. I know we were just talking. You have written some uh, American history, and so it's not going to be any big surprise to you to know that the Ku Klux Klan was refounded in the early 20th century in response to um, uh, anti-Catholic uh, feelings in large part. Um, so yes, there were racial elements as well, but they really didn't like Catholics and so this anti-catholicism is something that that sticks around even to today and uh some some people have referred to it as quote the last acceptable prejudice and uh so a lot of what we we think about in terms of this conflict actually comes out of a much more complicated set of set of fears and biases that people have
0: very interesting and and of course now it's exacerbated by the news cycle and the need to drive ratings and so conflict equals attention equals uh you know a debate and and unfortunately it's so binary these days it's either republican democrat left right yes no scientist uh or religious- you know religious leader and you know maybe there is a lot of in between and a lot of gray it seems oh, to think, me like i think there's need. Could we say for sure that science and religion have everything all figured out? <laughs> As we oh, absolutely sit here in the no. the twenty first century. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right. no. <laughs> right. So um I know you you know, you've studied history way back to the beginning of civilization. Um, maybe give us an idea of some of the attitudes over time about science and religion. When when was it most uh collaborative, cooperative? in the past from what you've seen.
1: Um, so it's 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 really interesting because people often point to a uh an early Christian thinker by the name of Origen. Um and Origen was from what people often refer to as the Byzantine Empire, the eastern half of the, the Roman Empire. in the third century, and Origen makes this famous statement about what has Jerusalem to do with um, Athens. And it's often taken, if you read this section that's often put into history books, as that he is attacking philosophies, attacking a particular natural philosophy, and saying that we really shouldn't be studying these things. It's just not useful. Um, But then if you actually read that quote in context of the larger writing that he does, he discusses the various things you need to study in order to be able to understand the Bible and, and to be able to understand God. And he says, well, you need to be able to understand astronomy because God created the heavens, and there are references to astronomy in the Bible, and you need to be able to understand mathematics because this leads to high understandings of higher truth. You need to be able to understand history, and he goes through all these various things… And by the end, what you're left with is that he's saying, well, you do need to, to, to study these various things because if you don't, then you're not going to really understand God. And so this guy who's often held up as being sort of the progenitor of the conflict between religion and science, what he's really saying is that you shouldn't give up your religious beliefs and focus solely on scientific teaching… Um, and then skipping forward into the Middle Ages, uh, most of my writing has been about medieval Europe, and the Middle Ages is often held up as a period when, as one writer put it, the dead hand of faith uh, kind of stopped the, the march of progress of science. And, and yet during the Middle Ages, um, people like Albert the Great, who died in 1280, and he's, a, he's considered the saint of scientists for the Catholic Church… Um, Albert the Great said there can be no conflict between uh, faith and reason. He, if you perceive a conflict between faith and reason, then you're misunderstanding something. And even though he had a doctorate in theology, he spent most of his time writing about what we would consider science. So he wrote about physics. He wrote about astronomy um, because he thought that was the best way to understand God. And so it's really not until… You get up to the Enlightenment period, Um, really in the 18th and 19th century when you begin to have people who are outright atheists um, who view religion in general with distaste often, again, Catholicism in particular because it was connected to authoritarian governments such as you find in France… Um, And during that period, you begin to have more of a break, but you still have lots of very devout people who are performing scientific pursuits because of their religious beliefs.
0: Yeah, it's um, interesting. As you were saying that, I I was thinking about – well, a couple things. The first thing I'll I'll mention is about technology and the – Uh, over time, you talk about science uh, mm-hmm. throughout history, but yet it seems like in just the last 150 years or so since the Industrial Revolution, there's been, and, and I teach economic history as we talked about, you know, it, it's rather late in human experience that all of a sudden we seem to have ad- adapted, adopted a lot of this science and built on it and built on it and built on it to to create these technologies that. Uh, make our lives so much richer and uh, longer and health. Well, maybe not healthier, but you know what I'm saying. It's like all of a sudden mm-hmm. society has blossomed out of these Middle Ages, out of the past, and is is that perhaps because there's less of a focus on faith and more on science, or do you think it's just it was inevitable uh, an evolution of of our knowledge?
1: I don't think anything is inevitable, but I do think that definitely changing values and changing perceptions of what is really prestigious um, is important. And so this is one of those areas where I would argue that it's a lot more complex than anything inherent in religion. Um, But for example, throughout the Middle Ages, if you went to a university, then you were considered a priest in training. And there were people who went to universities, and they were interested in scientific development. So for example, there was a, an entire school of people at Oxford uh, called the Oxford Calculators who were working on what today we would call mathematical physics. And these people were definitely interested in science, but it was often more sort of a sideline pursuit because the thing that had so much prestige uh, was the study of theology… … and that was considered the queen of sciences, and so it's it definitely reduced the amount of energy and effort that people were putting into scientific pursuits. But then there are also other factors such as, um, again, during the Middle Ages, it was considered uh, the kind of thing that a very low-class person would do, a person of very low status… if they worked with their hands, and this goes all the way back to the Greek idea that manual labor is something that slaves do. And so during the Middle Ages, you didn't have people who did physical experiments um, because doing a physical experiment was the kind of thing that was beneath them. They considered it beneath them, and it really wasn't until during the Renaissance, an artist began to develop a much more prestigious reputation. So people began to respect those who worked with their hands more, that that idea changed, that working with your hands could be something very valuable. And then we begin to have experimental science developing out of this period where there's more prestige associated with working with your hands. And so sometimes the things that hold back scientific development or technological development are not  … what people necessarily attribute them to, and so people will point to religion today sometimes and say, well, that held things back when in reality it was more about what the culture valued. And then there's this also big discussion about that during the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, there just weren't as many people who were uh, well enough educated.  … that they could apply themselves to scientific pursuits, and so as you get more educated people in the population, then by necessity, at least some of those people are going to be interested in, in scientific development, cultural developments, and so you're going to have more of those things occurring. Right. Yeah,
0: that makes a lot of sense. The geometric growth of education equals the geometric growth of technology and the economy
1: perhaps. That's a really yeah, good way of putting it, yes, absolutely. It'd be
0: an interesting thesis, wouldn't it? <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. It's 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 the kind of thing that maybe a historian and an economist should work together on. <laughs> there you
0: go. Yeah. Yeah, I've got enough ideas to work on, but that's one that <laughs> that might actually draw me in. That's not a bad idea. It's it sort mm-hmm. of answers some of the, the big questions of our more recent history in, in the West, certainly. Which right. as you were talking, I was thinking about you mentioned earlier about the Islamic culture and there was a time when that blossomed scientifically and I know the Chinese culture did for a while and there's even talk of and depending what shows you're watching and what you're reading, uh, they talk about, you know, the Greeks and some of the scientific inventions they were dabbling with way back when. Maybe they mm-hmm. never came to great scale, but in in your own experiences from what you've what you've researched, was there a time maybe when we were close to hitting that Critical point where things could have blossomed like they did since 1800 here, or uh, you know, maybe we'd have a whole different world if if technology had developed, uh, you know, a thousand years ago.
1: Certainly, um, in in all of the examples that you just gave, are good examples of how that complex social forces often come to play to stall out some of those developments. So, for example. With the Greeks in the second century, there was a great uh, deal of emphasis on studying the um, natural world among Hellenistic thinkers, and so people who uh, were using Greek philosophy, but they weren't necessarily Greek, so the inheritors of the Greek tradition. But as things kind of fell apart um, and conditions got worse in the second century BCE, I meant to say, um, then… Many people began to sort of withdraw from thinking about the physical world and focus on analyzing um, the inner self or a higher plane of existence. And so by the time that you get to the rise of Christianity, um, Greek thinkers had by and large uh, turned away from the sort of natural philosophy that led to scientific developments and instead were focusing on um, the sort of… Platonic thinking, so the analysis of higher planes of existence that can lead to some really interesting stuff, but it's definitely not going to lead to technological development. Same thing with yeah. the Chinese. The Chinese made lots of developments, but in China, to be an educated person, especially by the uh, 11th and through the 13th century, was to be a Confucian scholar to study this this system of moral philosophy that Confucius had developed… And so the prestige associated with that was what drove people into education and looking for jobs in in the Chinese uh, imperial bureaucracy. And then those people would do scientific things sort of on the side, and there just wasn't a lot of prestige in developing scientific ideas. Um, Within the Islamic world, uh, there were theological developments that may have…  … acted as a barrier to uh, scientific development. So for example, uh, in the 12th century, there was a man by the name of al-Ghazali who basically argued for an interpretation of the Islamic worldview that said that natural law isn't really a thing, and um, that became very popular. And probably didn't help the development of science. But at the same time, in the 11th and 12th and 13th century, there began to be a lot of warfare and conflict within the the Islamic world that probably was as big a factor in taking away resources from the development of science. So many, many, many things went into play.
0: So, given that you've looks like you've studied mostly the uh, the whole expanse of human history, at least the uh, civilized my civilization aren't we? Uh what what's your favorite era when you uh, when you go to research is there a particular time a particular era that you're most excited about a turn john
1: i have a little bit of academic add um, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> i i really love the middle ages and so most of my research has been on medieval europe and it's for a couple of probably odd reasons. Um, I come from – I'm a first-generation college student and came from a, a pretty poor background. and didn't start college till I was 23, and um, I certainly didn't know anything about Catholicism growing up in northern Alabama where I, I don't think I ever met a Catholic. And uh, then when I got into graduate school… Um, I became interested in trying to understand the Middle Ages more because I'd always had a very negative view of the Middle Ages and had been grown up being told by people who were primarily Baptists a lot of negative things about Catholicism. And so I became fascinated as I basically learned that many of the things that I thought were true were just plain wrong… Um, And then on top of it, studying the Middle Ages offers some really complex challenges. You have to become fluent in Latin, for example, and so that appealed to me because I like puzzles and I like challenges. Um, But I also, in more recent times, have gotten really interested in what people often refer to as the scientific revolution um, and how that… Things that we think of as entirely rational ideas like, for example, Galileo developing the heliocentric, the sun-centered view of the universe um, can emerge out of things that we think of as irrational. So, for example, Galileo was an avid astrologer, um, did a lot of astrological work, and he was committed to a philosophical position called Hermeticism… And hermeticism um, basically – Christian hermeticism identifies God with the sun, and so from that perspective, it makes sense that you would think of the sun as the center of the universe. And so there's this influence in Galileo's thought that isn't what today we think of as rational, and yet for him it was perfectly rational given his own beliefs in the way that he saw the world
0: interesting. Yeah, so maybe his uh, misguided belief <laughs> leads to uh, some accuracy, some some truth in the end. Um we right. only have a few minutes left. Believe it or not, we we've, we've managed to fill just about the whole time. So I wanted to give you a couple minutes to talk about what you're working on now, what you might work on next. Maybe that book on education and and philosophy and <laughs> economics and
1: technology.
0: <laughs> we got to talk
1: about. I that think way. I think that's a great idea. Um, Right now I'm working on a book called The Magical Middle Ages, Uh, again for Sunbury. Thank you. Um, And it's examining um, uh, the role of magic in medieval thought, and a lot of people…  … … will automatically think that the Middle Ages at a time when the Catholic Church was dominant, um, that, that there would necessarily be some sort of a conflict between the religious teachings of the Catholic Church and magical beliefs. And yet in reality, uh, particularly in the High Middle Ages, you find a lot of priests who actually involve themselves in magic, and there are… Physicians use a lot of what today we would definitely call um, uh, forms of magic during the high Middle Ages. Um, There does begin to be a conflict between particularly women who use magic, but that has as much to do with um, efforts to basically push women out of spheres of influence and to control them more. And so these sort of developing uh, patriarchal ideas that women should be controlled, and so they shouldn't be involved in anything that gives them power. And so it's not – again, it's not as simple as saying the religious ideas conflicted with the magical ways of thinking.
0: Well, Scott, uh, we look forward to doing that next book. It's been great having you. If I've learned anything, it's that we need (laughs) to talk more. (laughs) Yeah, we definitely definitely should. uh, should have you back on here, and we should have some conversations outside of the show. Any uh, hey, last words before not that we far. sign up? Sh- Um,
1: yeah. no, I really, I, I really like uh, writing, but I think that for the as last words, I think that basically people should just understand that the world is a lot more complex and complicated and beautifully weird uh, than many people try to make it out to be. Very good.
0: Well, that's the beautifully weird Dr. Scott E. Hendricks <laughs> joining us here. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this time, Scott. We'll have you back on. Scott is the author of God's Philosophers and Scientists, and this has been the Sunbury Press book show on the Bookspeak Network. <music>